This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and D6 Conference hosted a track called Family Discipleship. How are you doing with family discipleship at your church? Well, D6 Conference has put together a free assessment to help you discern exactly how your church is doing at equipping parents to disciple their kids. This free assessment is called the Church Health Assessment, and it's just 30 questions. They've even included scoring instructions, so you can do the whole thing for free, and it's self-guided. Download this at discipleship.org d6. It's a PDF available at discipleship.org d6. That's the letter D and the numeral six. Now here's one of the track sessions from D6. How many, let me see by show of hands, I, I'm just polling the room, just kind of getting a feel. How many of you guys are in children's ministry? That's your primary role, children's ministry. Preschool ministry, let me see your hands. Preschool ministry. Okay, uh, student, or let's start with middle school, because we can break them out. Middle school ministry. Okay, middle school, good. You'd have been mad if I just went right to student ministry, wouldn't you? Okay, Okay. good, good. Student ministry then? Student ministry? Family ministry. Let me see your hands. Family ministry. Hold your hands back up. Family ministry. Good, good. Okay. I love that number. That keeps rising in, in places that I'm at. Now, what, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to overlook other people. Family ministry, raise your hands for just a minute. I want to keep, keep them up for just a minute. What were you doing five years ago? Five years ago? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good honest answer. <laughs> Parenting? Yeah. Okay. Yourself? Okay. Good deal. Family ministry five years ago. Singles ministry, okay. Anyone else have their hands up for family ministry? Just remind we were doing the same thing. Same thing, okay. Good for you. Good for you. Men's ministry, ministry. transition into family ministry. Good. How many lead pastors are in here? Lead, senior, pastors, okay. How many worship? Worship pastors, worship leaders? Okay, yeah, absolutely. What did I overlook? What did I miss? Women's ministry? Men's ministry? Discipleship. That's right. We go by different titles in here. So when I, sometimes when we think through this, discipleship, family ministry, next-gen ministry. Um, those of you who are in family ministry, we haven't started yet, by the way. I'm, I'm still letting people slide in. I, I'm, I'm feeling out the room for where we are. Uh, those of you who are in family ministry, discipleship, next-gen, raise your hands up for a minute. I, gotta, I want to poll you for a couple of questions, if you don't mind, uh, kind of hunkering down here. If you keep your hands up, if you are birth to age 18, keep your hands up. If you are birth to the very end of life, keep your hands up. Okay? Okay? So what about from say birth to 2426? That's the that's your only area. Oh, that's good. That's a good trend. You know, I often see churches who name family ministry or next gen ministry and they give them birth through age college or whatever, just post college. And I'm going, wow, that's not family ministry when you only have the kids. You know, you've got to have the, the parents and the, or the grandparents involved in that for it to be generational discipleship or family ministry as such. Okay, I think we're close enough at this point. Let me check. Okay, I got 229. Are you okay with one minute? How many people are OCD in this room? Let me see your hands. My hand's up with you, okay? My, my daughter says, Dad, you're not OCD. You're CDO because you have to alphabetize it. So... Um, yeah, I know, I know. 
By the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on my my fellow uh, Tallahassean here. Anything that I'm sharing today, I'll be glad to give it to you. And so, if you want a copy of my slides, I'll throw them in the Dropbox afterwards and send you a you know an invite, and you can download them. However, if you want to take pictures of things you're going through, and that's your note-taking system. Go for it. Don't matter a bit to me. Uh, the goal is to help. I mean, literally to help and, and do what we can to serve. So. As we get started, let's just bow our heads in prayer for just a minute and invite God to, uh, to be with us through this period of time. Father, it's an honor to be here at this conference. Lord, you have literally brought people from, uh, based on polling the room, all over North America. We can't say all over our nation because I'm seeing people in conferences travel from many, many nations to come in. Based on the topics that we're discussing, they're so valuable to us. And so, Lord, I'm so appreciative that uh, you have protected each one of these uh, incredible ladies and men, and you've brought them together for uh, this conference and specifically for this topic. So, Lord, I pray, number one, as we wade into a very difficult topic, that you help us to look at this maybe from a different perspective than what we have been viewing it up to this point, in a way that it can help not only our own families, but the friends and fellow church members who also are dealing with this topic. That's our prayer. That's what we ask as we deal with this very sensitive subject in your name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you for being here. And the topic that we do have today is godly parents and prodigals, what to do. Now, you know, as as we wade into this, I've got several disclaimers I'd like to to, uh, kind of lay out. But before we do, I want to lay some context for us. You know, you've attended or decided to pop in on the D6 track. And so I I wanted to at least lay some groundwork for what D6 is. Many of you probably already know that, but let's kind of talk through this. When we talk about family ministry or ministering to families today, it it kind of begins to be challenging just on the nomenclature we use, doesn't it? Uh, In fact, I was having this discussion. I was in uh, Texas about 10 days ago consulting with a church out there, and we were discussing terminology. There are people in our church that have never been married, don't have children, and they don't consider themselves a family. And so sometimes that that term terminology alone, when we say, hey, we're ministering to family, they go, well, that doesn't pertain to me. Young college students uh, that are often unmarried, they think, well, we're not part of family ministry. They forget that they are a daughter or a son. They forget that one day they will be parents. I, I attended a, a, an incredible marriage seminar with my wife many years ago. I went to it multiple times. Many of you have probably been to the same one. I took notes over how to be a parent. We didn't have kids. And I kid you not, 16 years later, I used some of those notes when we were embarking upon teenage years and things were going. I remember them vividly hearing that. And so, you know, anytime you hear somebody that's younger thinking, well, I can't do this. Let them know that it's either preparation or it's mentoring for other people. And just because you may not be in that role doesn't mean you can't help other people that are uh, facing those same items. So let's do talk through just a little bit about what family is today so that we understand that. Oftentimes people throw, throw some accusations around going, well, the Bible really doesn't relate to what's going on in the context of family today. Let's just kind of walk through this just for a minute. You know, how family ministry works... First of all, God intended, you know, a traditional type families we see it laid out. A dad, a mom, a son, and a daughter. And, you know, that's ideal. Now, I think you heard me up here earlier before we got started in the class. I was admitting to you as a class 
my mom lives in Pensacola. My dad lives in Tallahassee. They divorced when I was 14. So I understand from a child's perspective what divorce can do and the effects that it has. When we look at the divorce that's in our church and the blended families, let's be very, very cautious that we don't assume every family is intact the way it was intended to be because many times we do have that blending and those challenges that come with blending. But if you're like me, we often see, though, many grandparents have become the primary parents of their grandchildren. I mean, legally raising them, making all the decisions, they're living with them based on incarceration, based on addictions, based on various reasons. We find grandparents being that, uh, that primary parent. But also, I, I pastored for 11 years prior to being at my role in Christian publishing and, and leadership in D6 Family Ministries in Randall House. And I don't know about you and your churches, but I often saw moms, single moms, bringing their kids to church. I can't remember in 11 years a single dad bringing their kids. I know it happens, but I didn't witness it over that period of time. You know, part of me says moms are more courageous than dads are on that topic. I mean, they're really willing. They're juggling a million things, but yet they're still making their Heavenly Father and church a priority for their families. And I think sometimes dads, we duck out, we're embarrassed, we, we lack that courage to step forward and do that at that point in time. But either way, we see a single parent, and that's fairly typical in our church, single parents with a, uh, being mom or dad raising that. But we also have the adopted side. The adopted would be, just like you see up here, a church member stepping in because there are kids in our church that don't have parents present. And you step in and you think, hey, how can I just, just love on those kids? How can I just be a part of them? And I want to just pause here and challenge you for a moment. Don't just love on them in the moment while they're there in the pew, but find out a little bit about them and you and your spouse attend one of their ball games or one of their recitals or get involved in their life outside of church because at that point, they know that you begin to care. But if you decide that, hey, you found this adopted child, do not pretend to take the place of that parent because you could create a barrier from them coming to find Christ. So walk that line very carefully, loving them and making sure that you involve that parent as much as possible. But people look at this today and say, well, that's what, the, that's what church looks like. The Bible really does, only probably addresses that first area. And I would remind us, no, that's not the case. Let's look back at scripture for a moment. God intended Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm pretty happy that when he uses that, and that's typically that classic, hey, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob repeated throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, that terminology. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What model guys to follow, right? Yeah, yeah right. I am so thankful Hebrews 11 is filled with imperfect people. You know, really and truly. But God intended that ideal family that is dysfunctional, just like our American culture. But that's, that's not what always happens. We see even in the book of Esther, we find an uncle. Another family member stepping in, being that parent to Esther there. It might be an uncle, it might be an aunt, it might be a grandparent, but we have that, uh, that adapted situation within the family because of some set of circumstances that occurred. We find the one parent, Eunice and Timothy. We don't know if Timothy's father was you know, dead, absent, out of the picture, but we only see Paul addressing Timothy's mom and his grandmother in there, commending them for, for that development. And then we find the adopted side with Paul and Titus. Remember in Titus chapter 2, Paul makes this statement, Titus, you're my favorite adopted son in the faith. Now, if I were Timothy, I'd be a little ticked by that statement. 
You know, but that's what he says there in Titus. I don't know if Paul thought Timothy would never read that statement. You know, who knows? Didn't want that to be a circulatory letter like some of the others. But that, th- this is literally the, the biblical context for family, just like we see today. We, don't have a, we have not cornered the market on dysfunction in America. Okay? I don't know how our, our sister from Canada is doing, but I know America has not gotten it right along the way. Okay? We've blown it through this. So what we see today in today's culture also is apparent in Scripture, and, and we just need to recognize it. Let me state this for, for the record. When we think about uh, stepping in and adopting a child in church who doesn't have a parent present, I want to remind you of one other type of child. There are lots of children in your church who have spiritually absent dads. They may be showing up. They may be there. They may be drawing a great living. They may be providing for that child, dressing them well, sending them to the best schools, but they can be spiritually absent. The truth is that's true for moms too. So just recognize those areas. Now, as we move forward, let's talk through just for a moment, what is Deuteronomy 6? And I can see that here on this slide, it has changed colors. I've got three different colors going on here, and that's not the color the slide originally had. But this passage basically says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, impress them upon your children. And then says, as you do life, you talk with your children. You have these conversations and when you have these conversations, you have them from the time they get up in the morning to the time you send them out or carry them to and from practice or school or wherever we're going to, to the point that when we tuck them in bed at night, just look for opportunities to engage your child. That's Deuteronomy 6. That's D6, by the way. As we do life, we want to teach our parents to be the primary disciples of our children. Now, at D6 Ministries, we believe strongly in church and home working together. What's happened in our culture over the last three and a half decades is all of you who raised your hands that you're in children's ministry, student ministry, families, the parents, and if you teach a life group or Sunday school or any small group, the parents bring their child to you and say, you teach them, you're the expert. And they step away, kind of like they do when, with coaching travel ball. They're like, hey, we get the best coaches. You teach my kids. We find the best people in music. You teach my kids. And we've got this hire, the, the, the best, best talent, the hired guns, and they feel like they've done their job when they've empowered you to do it. That's not what Scripture tells us, not from the beginning of time. Genesis chapter 1 says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, if he simply meant, we're all adults here, if he simply meant procreation, when we get over to Noah, He would have been pretty happy because they procreated really well. The earth was populated full of people, but God looked down and he was not happy. And he says, Noah, build a boat because the earth is wicked. And he built a boat and we know what happened a year and so later. He, his three sons and their wives, each of them, all eight people walked out and God reissued the command, be fruitful and multiply. He meant be fruitful and multiply my image to your children and their children. Make disciples of your children. That was the goal. This is Deuteronomy 6. He reissues that command over and over throughout Scripture. Genealogy reinforces this. When we move through, Joshua makes that statement, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you read that statement very carefully, a few months later, in that same passage, Joshua dies. How could he issue that command knowing he's about to pass off the scene? Because he had done his job discipling his kids and his grandkids. We've got to do the same thing today. So when we see this passage of Scripture here, 
we see that we're to impress. That term is in Hebrew, means to make an indelible mark, and you don't do that one time. It's not like one big machine, we boom, impress something. It's a slow period of time. In fact, the Hebrew, another word for this is like a, a chisel, uh, a craftsman who chisels into the stone. You don't chisel out a statue with a hammer and a chisel overnight. It takes time, and that's what we're doing. We're chiseling away at our child's heart. We're chiseling away, helping to shape them. And we're not the only ones chiseling on them, by the way. The problem is we're not chiseling, and the world is. And the world's letting them shape their lives to be a whole lot more like the world than we are about Christ. And that's our, our, our challenge there. So we're to impress on them what? There are three things Deuteronomy 6 says, that we're to love and fear God. We're to love His Word, and by modeling it, we teach our kids to do exactly the same thing. That's what Deuteronomy 6 was about. He continues it all the way through, through the book of Nehemiah. I don't have time to go into that, but I won't teach this session well. But he closes the Old Testament in Malachi, but Nehemiah chronologically fits just before the book of Malachi. And we find that great, incredible passage in Nehemiah chapter 4 when he says, Fight for your children. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sisters. Fight for your wives. And right at the very end of that, he says, Fight for your homes. He's building a wall, and he has more problems with the people on the inside of the wall than he does outside of the wall. And at that point in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra stands, celebrates the completion of the wall, and at that point, the men, a few verses after Ezra preaches that great message, I always like to rearrange Nehemiah 8. I think Ezra is kind of doing this, what looks like our Sunday morning service. And then on Monday, it says on the next day, the first day of the week, it says all the men got together and they were studying the word together. They hadn't done that for many generations. Matter of fact, this is not since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. So that's a long time from Joshua to the end of the Old Testament. And the men are studying and they said, hey, they went back to the priest says, I found something here in the scriptures. I don't understand. What is this feast of tents? What is this feast here? And, and, and the priest says, well, when God delivered us out of the, the nation of Egypt and we were heading to the promised land, God gave us manna, he gave us quail, he gave us water. Our shoes didn't wear out, our clothes didn't wear out. And therefore, once a year, we're to build tents, bring our families under the tents and retell the oral tradition of what God has done so our kids and our grandkids will never forget. They had not told that story for generations and they'd forgotten not only what God had done, but they forgot the feast. And the men said, we must do this now. And they went out and built tents on the roofs of their homes, in the courtyards. And they brought their families in and they began, they and their spouses, to tell that story. We've lost that in the church today. And what Deuteronomy 6 is doing is calling us back. Ephesians 6, Ephesians 4, they're calling us back to build that back into our family. Ephesians, Paul works it beautifully from Ephesians 4, the marriage, all the way up to Ephesians 6, where we're building godly gladiators. Not somebody going looking for a fight, but if our truth of the gospel is attacked, our kids understand apologetics and can defend their faith. That's what we need in our culture today. So we like to say that discipleship is not an event. It's not church. It's not a conference. By the way, we have our own conference. We're quick to say discipleship doesn't occur at a conference. It occurs as a part of a way of life. We've got to do this every single day. We've got to teach people how to love the Scripture and love God. How many have a favorite sports team in here? Let me see your hands. 
How many were disappointed at the end of the series? Let me see your hands. You were disappointed at the end of the series. Anybody? Oh, everybody who's rooting for Houston in this room? Oh, wow. Okay. Who's your favorite sports team, by the way? Who do you cheer for? Let me hear it all together. Okay. I even seen logos held up. Some people are wearing their, their apparel. You know, if you've been a sports fan of any team very long, you, you know a bit about the team. You've been cheering. You own some, some clothing, whether it's a, a sweatshirt, a t-shirt, a ball cap. You know about the team. Probably you had a family member influence you over cheering for that team. You know, it's part of our life. It's, part, it's kind of built in. Any Alabama fans in here? Let me see your hands. Okay? Just want to see that. Were your parents Alabama fans? Yes. And your grandparents, probably, maybe, if you know. You know, very well could be. Um, how many uh, Tennessee fans are in here? U- University of Tennessee. Who's your arch rival? What's that? Alabama. Alabama. Okay, Florida. I knew there would be two or three in there. If you recognize somebody who was of the opposite, when you look at them, you instantly get a negative thought, don't you? How can they be, how can they be that fan? Come on. I mean... I will confess to you, I cheered for us. I still cheer for the same sports team. But whenever I think of our arch rival, there was a period of time in my young adulthood, I thought they were less educated than I was. <laughs> Isn't that horrible that I would feel that way? But it would do, it do. So many in this room might agree with me on this statement here. I've learned a long time ago when I'm on Twitter, I don't, tw- I don't tweet about politics and I don't tweet about sports teams because it quickly divides your audience. But you know, it does typify who we are. Well, our discipleship is built into us the same way. We have caught the love and the depth of love for church and Christ the way our parents did. If we saw it in our, in our parents that they were kind of fake or country club, we may be still going to church, but we're not treating it as seriously as we should. We're viewing church as a great place to make social connections, a good place for our kids to one day get married, but we're not taking it more serious than the friendships that we have. Deuteronomy 6 says it's a way of life. It's not an event, and that's where we want to get to. All right, let's jump in a little bit deeper into our topic today. There's a good chance that if I were to come to your home, you would have something that looks like these pictures hanging around the wall or maybe on the mantle of the fireplace, maybe on your bedside table, but you would have some incredible family portraits. Now, I'll tell you, both of our kids are grown. Matter of fact, this year we, had, we have two kids, two grown kids, a boy and a girl. We had two weddings two weeks apart. <laughs> yeah, we didn't plan it that way, our kids did. And it turned out to be a good thing, but uh, uh, our kids are grown. They're at a good place in life. Uh, they both have married good, incredible Christians. And I must tell you, I can't always tell you that was the way it was. Thus, kind of born this talk today when we walk through some valleys and some difficulties uh, through, through these years of especially teenage years and, and what goes with that. But I'm convinced that when we see these portraits around our home, Oftentimes, we have fond memories and current pain. That's what tends to happen with some of these family portraits. And it all comes back to we're not pleased with where our kids are. We uh, do the D6 conference. I I mentioned that earlier. And uh, I direct that conference and have since the uh, very beginning in 2009. And in 2009 and 10, I remember very distinctly conversations happening in the aisle in the midst of 2,000, 2,300 seats 
in this you know, auditorium area. I would have ministry leader after ministry leader, usually a children's pastor, occasionally a student pastor. They would come to me and they'd say, Ron, we've got our whole team here, but we can't get our lead pastor here. What's going on? How can we get our lead pastor here? And when I first heard that, I just began to give them some encouragement. But after hearing that, I kid you not, 9, 10, 12 times each year, 2009, 2010, I decided there was a bigger trend going on there than I'd realized. And so I decided to dive into it and research this a little deeper. Here's what I discovered. Most lead pastors are of the age that their kids are either teenagers or they're grown. And one or more of their kids have either walked away from church or their faith. And lead pastors then do not feel like they can champion family ministry when they have not modeled it properly. And I thought, that's integrity. Because they're worried they would be viewed as hypocritical if they were to champion something they didn't feel like they modeled. Or they have disqualified themselves. And both of those things could be true. Now, if that describes maybe a church that you know or maybe a staff member that you know or whatever, I hope that this session today is going to help you work through that issue to get past it to where you can champion family ministry. I'm going to try to help you with this. Because one of the areas that we face about parenting is we go into it, first of all, scared to death, right? I mean, do you remember taking that little one home from the, ch- from the hospital the first time? I mean, I was scaling to death. Never done this before. I mean, we often told our oldest he was an experiment. You know, we, we, we were really feeling our way along. But I thought, I really want to be a great parent. I want to have no regrets. But I have so many. There's things I could do differently. Things I would go back and do differently. And if you're honest with yourself and your spouse, you'd probably say the same thing. There are a lot of things we can change. We'd love to change, but we can't change, not not going back in history. But that's where we find ourselves with this topic today, is in this very item. We find ourselves, the two of us, we don't have that whole portrait all together. And as a result, you know, we have a lot of grief over those family portraits. So let me give you this disclaimer as we move a little deeper. The topic of prodigals can cause discomfort and pain due to the level of grief similar, and I want you to catch this, to the depth of love that we have for our kids. If we did not love our kids, this topic would not be painful. By the way, I often as a minister would comfort people at funerals of their dear loved ones. I said, your, your grief is because of the love you have for them. And this is no different than the prodigal. In fact, I've had parents tell me it would have been easier to lose them to death younger than to lose them to the culture of walking away from their faith with God because they fear for where their, their eternity with their kids will be. So I, here's my commitment to you, I will attempt to use grace when tackling this very difficult and tough topic. I believe grace is very apparent in God's word. He wants truth, but he wants it to be done in love, and he wants to be done and balanced with grace. And so that's our goal as we, we kind of move into this. If you have young kids in your home, maybe teenagers, maybe middle schoolers who are going through some of these, some of the topics that we're going to talk about will fit that. If they're grown kids, it also fits that as well. So I want you to just realize it doesn't really matter what season of life that you're in or maybe the members in your church. And before you get done, I hope you realize that this talk is not only for us as parents, 
but for the parents of our church because we can turn this into a ministry and it can be a very powerful item. Barna did a study and he asked uh, quite a number of pastors and here's the key. I want you to understand anytime a survey is done, any type of research, quantitative, qualitative, you need to go and figure out who participated. This was pastors, okay? Key, key item here. Pastors were asked why they believe their kids struggle with their faith. Why pastors believe their kids struggle with their faith. The very first one that he said, pastors, 28% of them said that there were unrealistic expectations placed upon them by others. You all, most of you have raised your hand, you're in ministry, you're in some type of leadership role in your church. There is a glass house that you've placed your kids in, and it can be very, very difficult for them. As much as you try, as much as you'd want for that not to be the case, sometimes they have to work a little harder to fit in or to prove that they're normal. And so there are sometimes those kinds of expectations we place upon them along the way. And so we've got to wrestle with that. In fact, I would challenge you to do your very best to raise and challenge your other new hire staff members. Raise their kids normal and don't expect their kids to be better behaved than any other kids in the church. They're human beings. They're absolutely ordinary and they're, they're normal in that. And the best thing that we can do in a seminar like this is whenever we recognize our mistakes that we made, help the next ones coming along not to make the same mistakes that we make. That's probably some of the, the biggest takeaways that we're going to get from this going, okay, I can't redo preschool years with my kids, but I can help the parents of preschoolers coming along. I can help make it better for them. Exposure to negative aspects of the church. Uh, again, almost one in five said this. And I want to state this one. You know, when I, I was smaller, we had a, uh, lived in a very small house, probably not 900 square feet, two bedrooms. And um, small square hallway, I was an only child growing up. And my parents, they were very involved in church uh, my entire time. And they always had good friends in the church. And as a result, on Sunday night, it wasn't uncommon for them to invite over uh, really close friends of the family. Uh, they would come over and they'd have dinner or they'd just have pie together or whatever, and they would just talk. And I, I remember by the time it was bedtime, they were sending me off to bed, and, they, and the guests were still over there. I mean, they'd hang out for a couple of hours. I'd go to my bedroom, and my bedroom, if, if this were the dining room table right here, you could go down the hallway, and it was like a four or five foot hallway, my parents' bedroom here, my bedroom here, and my bed was right here up against this wall. I could put my head at the foot of my bed, and I was no more than 10 or 12 feet from the dining room table, which meant I could hear everything. And that's what I did. So I'd flip around, and while I was laying there getting ready to go to sleep, I would listen. And inevitably, I remember when our church was going through a difficult time, I remember the other couple and my parents, and I was probably nine or 10, I would hear them talk about what the pastor was doing wrong. Okay? So I began to formulate in my mind how bad the pastor was and what was going on. Now, the flip side can be true. If your child, your son or daughter, flips their head around in bed and they hear mom and dad talking about how the deacons are treating you improperly, how this was one difficult family, or how the church is not, and we can go on and fill in the blanks, the child gets an idea of, I don't like the church because the church is hurting mom and dad. They don't know how to balance that out. And so the challenge would be to very, have a very honest discussion with your kids. Don't hide the difficulties from them, but don't also hide the blessings. 
and the chance to minister and let them see the balance of it and how you navigate those waters very, very carefully together. So just be cautious that their only exposure is not negative regarding the church and that they're excited about those areas. Pastors self-admitted that they were often too busy for their families. Too busy for their families. Now, if you come from a bigger church or if you come from a smaller church, I would challenge you, the demands are very similar. Now, you can say, oh, no, there's a lot more in a, in a bigger church. I pastored in a very large church. I pastored in a very small church. My time was just as full in both places. But one thing you can do is pull out your phones, open up your calendars, and block time for your family. And when somebody asks you to do something, you can look in your family and say, no, I've got an appointment then. You don't need to tell them what. But the same appointment that you would make for anybody else your children and your spouse needs to feel that same priority that goes on. And unless there's a death or a significant emergency, don't let anything get in its way. So be cautious that they know that they are just as important because oftentimes the acting out is, okay, I just want to get dad's attention. I want to get mom's attention. I need that interaction time, and we've got to be very cautious of that one. 14% said that their faith is not modeled consistently at home. Their faith is not modeled consistently at home. I, as a goal, and this would be good for you to challenge the, the parents in your church, find parents who are about five years further down the road, three to five years, and let those parents find one or two sets of parents who are doing it really well and ask them to mentor them. Ask them to say, hey, I just want to ask you questions along. I won't absorb lots of time. But I always had, a, I, I, my wife and I, Pam and I, had about three to five sets of couples that we would call them and say, Hey, when did you give cell phones to your kids? When did you, you know, start teaching them how to drive, even though we can't teach them how to drive? You know? when did, and we started asking these questions through this. And one of the sets of parents, I remember him telling me as our kids were getting to be 10 and 11 years old, his name was Clarence. Clarence says, one thing I need you to recognize, Ron, he says, your kids are not stupid. They're super smart. They recognize inconsistencies in your life. Therefore, work really hard to be consistent. And I will tell you, I'm, I'm of Generation X. I don't know how many Generation Xers are in here. But I'm of the generation where my pastor growing up, it was pretty cool in his day to take the old albums, the records, the vinyl. Vinyl's making a comeback. But I remember my pastor taking that vinyl of rock records and breaking it, preaching against rock music and having these big burn festivals. And all of us teenagers in the church said, yeah, he really hates rock music, but has he ever listened to the country music lyrics he listens to? And we saw the inconsistency and we thought, sorry, we're, we're, not, we're not buying it. We're not buying it. Watch the inconsistencies. We can teach our kids to obey the rules of school, but when they see us cheating on our taxes or trying to fudge here or there against some legal system, they get it. They're going, okay, dad gets to pick and choose which rules. I get to pick and choose which rules I want to. The inconsistency is super, super apparent to teenagers. 9% say worldly influences are peers. Now, I want you to understand two, two aspects here. My pointer doesn't point at TVs. Number two, possibly number one if it's not parents. And this last one, those are not even parent related. I need you to recognize this. Because when we deal with prodigal topics... Every parent takes all the guilt, almost eight out of ten times. The exceptions to the rule is with, the, with people they date. 
and that's where we bump up against worldly influencers or peers. Oftentimes, our <coughs> child will begin to walk away based on who they date. Sometimes just based on friendship, so. You know, they start hanging around a group and we think, wow, Richard Ross, dear friend, how many have ever heard of Richard Ross in here? Okay, I'm gonna change that number. Raise your hands really high. How many have heard of Richard Ross? Okay, three. In a moment, I think I'm gonna have everybody's hand raised because all of you know who he is, you just don't know his name. How many have ever participated in See You at the Pole? How many have ever participated or know about True Love Waits? Okay, Richard Ross was the founder of both of those uh, events. Super incredible student pastor, professor at Southwestern Seminary. Anyway, he has a talk, and we have, them, have him recorded delivering this talk. It's a great one for your church to have. We have it on DVD. It's about 41 minutes long, and it's got brochures for your parents. You could actually plug it in, have a whole group of parents, give them this brochure, have him teach it, and then six months later have a new set of parents pass out the brochures again, let Richard Ross teach it, and you just facilitate it. But he basically pulls out a PVC pipe, about a four-inch, five-inch PVC pipe, and about a foot long. And he says, God created in your child a conduit, a pipe, that goes to their heart. And he says, when your child is young, the parents are the primary voices speaking into the child's heart. But as they go, grow older, mom and dad speaks less, and the child reorients that pipe towards friends, towards who they date, and they start taking in other voices speaking directly into their heart, and the parents get quiet. No wonder we lose our influence on that. And he talks about how we can change that, how we can model that. I will jump a little further into that on my talk later today and tomorrow uh, on repositioning our church for family ministry, part one and part two. I'll dive a little further into that topic. But our worldly influencers or peers can begin to pull our kids away especially, think about it this way, when they get their faith challenged. Well, that Bible's not absolutely true, is it? Come on, what about evolution? And we can start hitting any number of topics, and if we've not taught our kids how to defend their faith, if they can't defend it, they're probably going to begin to deny it. Because the school system, their friends begin to stack up, and they do not want to look foolish. They do not want to look inept. They want to fit into the crowd. They want to be cool. It's very rare that you have a, a son or a daughter that's willing to go against the flow on those areas. But if you give them the insight and the knowledge to be able to handle those difficult questions, even at early you know, elementary and middle school, then they can be quiet about it. They don't have to champion. They don't have to get up there with a microphone and preach to their classroom. But they can feel comfortable in their own skin. And that's the key part to that is being able to defend it. So the next one is self-discovery and free will resulting in rebellion. Absolutely. You know, God created each person with that choice. There's a, two trees he put in the garden. He didn't compel us to obey him. He gave us a choice. And with that choice, he didn't make us push-button robots. And with that, our kids do have that free will as they begin to discover and gain new insights. Tied with that one is the failure to make their faith their own. I know you can leave behind an inheritance, but you can't leave behind a spiritual inheritance. However, you can have a spiritual legacy. And there's a whole big difference between a legacy and inheritance. And that's what you want to do. These are just a few of the reasons why pastors believe their kids have walked away. 
Let's jump in a little bit further to what to do now that they have walked away. That's the key question. That's what we want to know. Uh, we can look at the causes. The reason why we deal with the causes is just like in society today, thank goodness, in our medical system. Our medical system determined two or three decades ago it was better to do preventative care rather than to triage the difficulties. If we know the reasons, we can do preventative care. Stop some other parents from making the same mistakes we made. But once we're into it, how do we begin to rescue and redeem? So if you're a pastor or ministry leader, you're going to recognize this formula. If somebody were to come to you with a sin problem or they messed up, you would walk them through the same steps in order to redeem their situation and get them plugged back into serving God and serving in the local church. It's no different in this situation either. Number one, I would counsel you to leave the guilt behind. When we know our child has walked away from faith or church, we feel guilt. We feel shame. We feel embarrassment. We feel many more emotions even beyond those, but those are the three primary ones that we feel. And as a result, we stay quiet. We don't champion family ministry. We don't talk about parenting. There are passages we're just leaving out of our whole repertoire because we don't think we've modeled it, going back to those, those lead pastors who are not showing up at the family conference of D6. And I would challenge you that, number one, Satan is causing guilt to disqualify you. He has sidelined you based on guilt and embarrassment. And here's the problem with that. There are other people who need to hear the message you've learned even from your mistakes. Most of what I've learned and retained were from the red marks teachers left on my papers, not from the good marks where I got it right. How many of you remember red marks more than you remember the good ones? I learned a whole lot more in the valleys than I do on the mountaintops. God has used my difficulties and my failures to shape me into who I am today. And this is one more valley that he is using to help shape you to shape others. And it makes a huge difference. So number two, own the past. Own the past. If your children walked away from faith or church while at the church you're at, the people in your congregation already knowing it know it. So not talking about it is a little dishonest. Not talking about it models for other people to not talk about it, to ignore it, pretend it's not there. That doesn't help the situation at all. That's very different than you coming to a church and this happening years ago when your children are already grown and the church didn't see it. How many are in preschool or children's ministry? Let me see your hands one more time. These people who just raised their hand know everything that's going on in church because of prayer time. You don't believe it? You have prayer time with preschoolers and children and you find out everything that's happening. That alone tells me that your church knows these situations far more than you think they do. And the best thing that you can do is to speak it from the pulpit, to speak it from the leadership platform that you have and say, you know what? Our son or daughter is not where they really should be, not where we want them to be. And there are some reasons for it. And just kind of address that in a sermon, in a teaching. You know, and then you will, you will bring such relief to people sitting in the congregation going, the pastor can talk about this. The teacher, this ministry leader can talk about this. I can too. I'm not alone. And that's going to take us into the next steps. Educate yourself. 
In 2013, my wife was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. We had pastored, as I said earlier, for 11 years, and then we had been at uh, Randall House for another 10. And I can tell you, in hindsight, we had a number of parishioners, church leaders, I mean, really key people who were close to us that had diagnosis of cancers. I showed up for surgery day. I showed up and I prayed with them. We sat together. I'd go visit them. But until it happens in your home, you don't have any idea the real follow-on. I mean, the greater tragedy that most families face is the chemo and the, the after effects of chemo and how disabling that can be. I wished I knew back pastoring what I knew when it happened to my wife. Now, I'm happy to tell you that after, you know, six or seven months of treatment, my wife is doing really well. She's now four years cancer-free. It's a really, really good story. But when she got the diagnosis, I went and spent more time reading books based on her diagnosis than anybody else's diagnosis that I'd had previously in my church. So if you're the parent of a prodigal or a grandparent of a prodigal, why do we treat it any less than a terminal diagnosis? Why won't we go out and find the three or four or five best books on the topic and read them and figure out what can I do other than sit quietly and grieve and mourn? Because sitting quietly and grieving is not going to help. Prayer helps. Prayer really helps. But prayer and education so that we can ask God, what do I need to do? What's my part in this? How can I play a role in the redemption of my child? That makes a huge difference. And if you'd like some, some of those lists, by the way, I've, on the sidebar over here, the DNA of D6, this comes from one specific chapter and another chapter as well in the book called The Senior Pastor Complex. It was named after the very talk I, I shared with you at the very beginning. People come to me going, my pastor's not at this conference. Well, pastors don't talk about family because of their, their children being in this. That's a senior pastor complex. It's real. In the end of that chapter, I give recommendations for books you can read on on prodigals. But you can go to christianbook.com or you can go to Lifeway or you can go to and say, hey, what do you have on prodigals? And you can get a list. And you just need to go read two or three or four of them. Educate yourself. And then you need to ask forgiveness. This is where it gets a little harder. Because when we think, hold it. Remember all the reasons that I shared with you from Barna? I didn't do anything wrong. They dated the wrong person. They walked away from the face. I don't need to ask forgiveness. I'm going to say this as gently as I can. Do not let your pride stand in the way of your relationship. Do not let your pride stand in the way of your relationship. While your son or daughter may have allowed a peer or a person they were dating or maybe an influential teacher in high school or college lead them away from their faith, once they started dealing with that, nine times out of ten, parents start drawing some hard lines between them and their child that further distance that relationship. That may be what you're seeking forgiveness for, not that they made the mistake and walked away. When you go to a son or a daughter and you're seeking forgiveness, you're beginning to tear down the barriers. And that's all you want to do is you want to tear down a barrier because when they walked away from the faith, most parents began to isolate themselves from their child. It often happens, the most common one, 
happens whenever they're dating the wrong person. They want to, quote, live together or whatever. And you're like, well, I can't condone that. I'm in ministry. What will our church think? Go back to the number one issue Barna said, unusual expectations placed on them by others. Why do we think our child's going to be more perfect than somebody else? We're not saying it's right. But all of a sudden, we further distance ourselves just because we're in ministry based on what our child did. And that's what we seek forgiveness for. So we're actually admitting that we contributed to the cause. Or maybe we're causing a barrier that's preventing the relationship from growing where it needs to be. But the fear of asking forgiveness is that you think your child will think that you're now accepting what they did. You're condoning it. And this is most often, most often personified when we see our child being influenced by the culture of homosexuality or one of those other areas that we see today. Well, if I begin to write a letter asking forgiveness and they've not changed their lifestyle, they'll think I think it's okay. Ask yourself this. Doesn't your child know your beliefs? Don't they know where, where you've stood all this time? Don't you know what has taken this to the point that you've gotten at today? They know where you stand. They just need to know if you still love them. And that's what seeking forgiveness is about, to remind them that you still love them. When we read the story of the prodigal in the Bible, the son is returning from a far country. The father does not know if that child is repentant or not. And before he knows whether or not he's repentant or not, what is his posture? He's running to the son. Your child needs to feel you running to them with love. Doesn't mean that you'll say, hey, what you're doing is okay. That's not what I'm asking for. That's not what Scripture asks for. What it does mean is that you need to extend love. And we as a church have not worked out a really good way to show love without confusing it with acceptance. We've blown that very badly in the last few decades. I have a letter that... Uh, I suggested in the book. It's on page 51. And what I'm suggesting to you, if you're in this situation or you're coaching somebody who is a parent of a prodigal, that they write a similar letter and put it into your own words. Don't, don't copy it verbatim, but it just gives you an idea. And I'd strongly recommend that you don't email it. You don't call them and try to give it to them verbally. I realize that in a written form, they can't fully understand your emotion. But you're counting on a couple of things. Number one, this needs to be a one-way communication where you can say everything before being interrupted. Number two, you have prayed over this and you have gotten a chance to edit this carefully. You've really worked on the wording to where you have shown love, you've shown grace, you've shown care. And then I want you to write it by hand on a note card and mail it to them. Because I want it to be a benchmark in their life that they can hold on to. They may immediately throw it away, but there's going to be a concrete item of your love. And it would say something like this. You write dear and you put their name in. And I've got some fill in the blanks in this letter 
that for now, I'm just going to use the word busyness. Maybe busyness is what got between you and your child. Maybe that was your contribution. Maybe they dated somebody else, but you're using busyness as the fill in the blank. Dear, you fill in the blank. While I've not always shown it, I love you more than you know. Recently, I've been reading about how ministers have worked really hard, have been successful in growing a church or a ministry, and yet have lost the most important relationship in the world, the one with their child. I'm very sorry that I put busyness or church ahead of, ahead of you. I spent more time with, and here's another fill in the blank, other people in the congregation rather than having long conversations discussing what matters to you. I didn't always have answers for you about, and you fill in the blank for where they had questions. I know at times that I made you feel like our problems were all about you when I too contributed to this situation. I can't change the past, but I'm owning it. I would give anything to go back and do things differently. And while I can't go back in time, I can try to change what I do in the future. Will you forgive me? Will you let me start trying to rebuild our relationship without guilt, without one-sided expectations, without preaching to you and just work hard on communicating, loving, and getting back to listening to you? If you're willing, I'd like to earn back your trust and confidence. I hope and pray that we can find each other all over again. I'm sorry. Can we try again because you mean so much to me? You put that in your own words and you reach out. Maybe you include a photo of you and that child having a great time at some point earlier. But it's a chance to say, I'm asking for a do-over. I'm asking that we can just have regular conversations. And if they grant you that, don't go in preaching. Don't use that time to go right back in addressing what drove them away to begin with. Just build that relationship. Learn about them. Ask about their job. Ask about their life. Ask about what's going on. And keep it light to begin with. We'll jump into some conversations over how to have these conversations in a moment. But I just want you to understand that we're trying to get a chance to start again. Now, when we do this... The next, number five, the next step is don't pretend to be the expert. You've read five books on it. By the way, I've listened to Pat Williams. He was, uh, I know his health has gotten the best of him. And those of you from Florida, South Florida specifically, he's a, he was or is a high-ranking member, vice president or key in the Orlando Magic basketball team. But I heard him speaking some 10 years ago at a conference. He said, if you want to be an expert on any given topic, all you've got to do is read three books on that topic, and you know more than everybody else around you. Do you know what? By the way, do you know how many? I'm in publishing. I'm in Christian publishing. I'm embarrassed by this stat. Do you know how many nonfiction books a person reads after they leave high school or college? The average adult. How many nonfiction books they read for the rest of their life? None, two. None, two. Two, ten. I like your stats better. <laughs> The stat is between the two of theirs, less than one. Okay? They'll start one. They typically never finish it. That's a shame. That really is a shame. Mark Twain said it best. He said, the person who does not read has very little advantage over the one who cannot read. Think that one through. 
So you just need to read a few books, a couple of books on any topic, and you tend to know more than most people around you. But when you read them, the last thing your congregation needs is for you to walk in thinking you got it all together. So I want you to keep grace. I want you to keep humility. I want you to come in there and say, you know what, I'm reading Carol Barnier's book on prodigals, which, by the way, is one of my favorites. Carol Barnier, I think uh, either InterVarsity Press or some, I forget who published it. Really, really one of the best books out there. She was a, she would say her parents were the ideal parents. Christian, godly, did everything right. And it was a professor for her that led her away because she couldn't defend her faith. She walked away, became an atheist, and literally just didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And then later on, several years later, came back to Christ, now has children, teenagers, repeating that cycle right on through. Really, really book, really, really good book on, on prodigals. What's that name again? Carol Barnier. And by the way, if, it's uh, German. Uh, it does not, it, phonetically it doesn't spell out, but if, I, again, I've got her name in my book. I'll give it to you, and you can look her up on Amazon or whatever, okay? So you can, you can get that. Highly recommend her. We had her speak a couple years ago, truly gifted individual. But when we start reading that, don't go in and go, oh, I got it all figured out. Your church people don't need to know that. Um, in fact, what I would suggest is that you just constantly be covering this in, in prayer. And then, here's the cool part. You come back to your church and you, set, you find out, and here's the scary part. If you asked and polled and people were really honest, one in three families in your church have a prodigal. One in three. Now you can organize a meeting with them once a month. A prayer time, a Bible study, just a dinner of encouragement. But you pull them together and you share what your stories are. You share what you're doing. You share ideas of how to connect to their child's heart. We're going to share some of those with, as time permits here in just a moment. But all you want to do is connect to their hearts. And you want to just cover this with prayer. And so together, while you're meeting once a month, you pray for your sons and daughters. You pray for each other. And you can begin a prodigal ministry in your church as you're regaining a relationship with them. You're praying for a life circumstance that you can reintroduce them to Christ, where they'll come back and say, Mom, Dad, man, we're facing so-and-so. What advice do you have? And you can gently wade into those waters and say, well, this is what your father and I would do, or this is what your mom and I would do. Or, and you begin to have that, that conversation with them and reintroduce that. Your church needs to own this problem, and we need to try to work to reduce the percentages. I was just in Dallas about 10 days ago at the Society of Professors of Christian Education and the uh, um, AYME. They call it the Association of Youth Ministry Educators. It's kind of an academic, geeky-type conferences, but they're really, really gifted educators. And because I'm one of the people holding, you know, a doctoral degree from our, our organization. They said, Ron, you, you put on the geek glasses, you go. And, and, and I actually do enjoy that. But I've listened to these educators over time, and here's what I've discovered. When we first started talking family ministry, the stats were out there that 75% of our kids were walking away from their faith. They were leaving church. You know this. They're driving away. About the time they get their driver's license, they're leaving church entirely. I'm happy to tell you that those numbers are down to half now just 10 years later. And it's because of the emphasis on discipleship and family ministry and generational discipleship that's making a difference. It's about half. If we will start addressing the prodigals on a prevention level 
and a redemption level, we can begin seeing those stats change too. But the church has to acknowledge it out loud. Lead pastors, if you're in the boat of what I've described, you're not unusual if you have personally faced this. But your church needs you to lean back into this problem. They need you to be a part of it. And we need to have these kinds of conversations. And so it takes having difficult conversations with them, but I tell you what you can do. You can turn your stage into a living room or a dining room or a bedroom or a car scene, and you can play out something. And let me share with you what this could look like if you were to do this. I'm going to look back here for just a moment. Tell me your name for just a moment. Angie, Angie may I borrow you, Angie? Would you play the role of my daughter? Okay. My daughter, when she was uh, when she was in middle school, we homeschooled our, our kids for about seven years, from first and second grade all the way through eighth grade, and then we reentered the public school system. As we reentered the public school system, our daughter quickly, who was a social one of the two, began to have some peers influence her the wrong way. That stat from Barna absolutely defined our, our daughter on that. And she so wanted to fit in, she would relax her standards in certain areas. And one of the, wor- one of the areas that most concerned her mother and I was she started dating a non-Christian young man. And our, my wife and I cringed. We prayed over it. We talked to our daughter. No, this isn't. But she's like, Dad, we're just hanging out. We're not really dating. And, you know, no matter what conversations we had, this is what began to play out. Well, she finally broke up with this young man. We thought, yes, we've won that victory, only to date another one right behind that. And you know how this goes. I mean, you can begin to see her heart changing. And my wife is the prophet of the family, and I'm so thankful. She told me one day, she said, Ron, don't push her away. Maintain a relationship with her. Don't push her away. And I'm so very thankful. And then one day, my daughter, I'm going to describe for you two car rides that we had together, okay? Tell me your name one more time. Angie. Angie, Angie, will you take the passenger seat? My daughter wasn't driving at the time, so you can't drive. She was um, eighth and ninth grade. So Angie's going to be Lauren, okay? We were in the car. And when we got in the car, we would often begin like this. And maybe... Maybe your uh, family was like mine. When my daughter and son gets in the car, they know dad's probably listening to talk radio or music that they don't like. And they're like, let me pop in my earbuds. And immediately we're in like three different worlds. My son's listening to one music. My daughter's listening to another. I'm listening to what I like. But there's zero conversation, which means there's zero relationship going on. Okay? So I learned this phrase. Hey, before you put in your earbuds... Can we just catch up on our day? And usually Lauren would say, sure. And my goal was to see how well I could keep that conversation going. How many know the tennis ball game? Good. We need to teach them the tennis ball game. Will you, will you hang on, Angie? You stay right here. Tell me your name. Edward. Edward. Come over here, Edward. I'm going to turn off my remote so we don't change anything up here. Edward, how was your day? It was good. How was yours? Well, it was good. I got a chance to go to conference meet some really cool people. Uh, what, what made the highlight of your day? I was at the same conference and being able to play a tennis ball game with a new guy. Oh, cool. What oh, cool. was the highlight of yours? What was the highlight of mine? You see the, the concept here. The toss of the ball is an asking of a question. Okay? We can't have conversation without questions. You need to teach your kids this principle. 
And so when our kids were really small, we literally tossed a ball and taught them that when they were like four, five, and six. So when they got to be in the car, that was natural. We didn't have to have a ball anymore. Thank you. You can have a seat. So I want you to understand that. So when we're sitting here, she knew what was about to happen. We're about to have an exchange, okay? And it does exactly what we just did, highlights of the day. You know, hey, before you put in your earbuds, which is different than saying, don't you put in those earbuds. I don't want you to listen to that music. I mean, one of the highest compliments your daughter or your son can have. One day, my daughter, she's sitting there and she leaned over and says, hey, dad, you want to you share an earbud? Well, my first thought was, okay, what am I about to be listening to, okay? That was a huge compliment when she handed me one of her earbuds. Do you remember me telling you I'm OCD? I'm sitting there going, how can I listen to music with one earbud? I mean, come on, I'm only going to get one side. I mean, I was really, all these thoughts were running through my mind. And I looked at my daughter and I smiled and I said, yes. And I put it in and sure enough, it was not music that I would really enjoy. But I left it in and I shared that moment with my daughter. And that's what we needed that moment. She didn't need a sermon on the music that she was listening to. She needed a connection with her dad. Okay? Now, this day, I said, before you put in earbuds, can we catch up? And we began to talk. And somehow we bumped into what my wife had warned me about. Don't push your daughter away. This was the first car ride. And I began to bring up Alex, the second young man my daughter was dating. And as soon as I did... My daughter looked over at me and she says, Dad, I don't need to hear one more time where you and Mom stand on this. I know where you stand on it. I thought, she's right. She just needs a dad to love her right now and to be there so that when she has questions or when we can go into a little bit deeper conversations, I'm there. Because the more I bring up Alex, the more I'm pushing her further away. And the less she wants to talk about me because all I want to do is preach to her. Okay, different car ride, different day, several months later. My wife and I had been praying, we've been reading, we've been trying to discuss where this would go. And I've been praying for opportunity that my daughter would bring up the subject and that we could broach the subject in some way. And I I confess this to you because I want you to hear that the words that came out of my mouth that day I don't think I could think up, but the Holy Spirit helped me find it, and I was just trying to be obedient. So I I give God credit, not me, for this conversation. Car ride, four to six months later. We're driving, and by the way, our house is kind of in a... uh, We live out on a peninsula here in Nashville. Those of you familiar, if only four of you were from Nashville earlier, it won't make any difference. We're over near Opry Mills, where we were living at, and we were on Pennington Bend. And to get there, you turn off a Briley Parkway, which kind of splits the two. And you go around and you turn into our neighborhood over here on Pennington Bend. Or you can keep circling around Music Valley or all the way around and come back. And when my daughter and I would get into really good conversations, and I could tell she was enjoying it, I would drive right by our neighborhood. And she'd know I'd drive right by their neighborhood. It wasn't like I was fooling her. But she began to enjoy those conversations because we weren't preaching, we were just talking. And I remember one time she was opening up and it was a great conversation and she brought up dating Alex. And I just circled right by her neighborhood. I think we circled it three times that night, okay? Three times. But she made this statement. She said, Dad, she said, you know, I just can't help how I feel about Alex. I can't control who I fall in love with. 
And this is where the Holy Spirit really gave me some words that day. And I looked at her and I says, I understand, maybe more than you realize. I said, Lauren, you know, Dad's been at Randall House now. I've been there 15 and a half years. This was about five, five and a half years ago, maybe six. I looked at her and I said, you know, Dad's been at Randall House about eight or nine years. And I guess you're finally old enough for me to let you in on something. And she thought, oh, Dad's kind of pulling back the curtains and you know, revealing something pretty deep here. And I said, well, I'm not sure your mother and I are going to remain married. And she kind of got eyes a little bit bigger. I said, well, there's this lady at Randall House who really makes me feel good. She compliments me. I kind of get the warm fuzzies on the inside every time I'm around her. And I'm kind of falling for her, and I'm not sure your mother and I are going to make it. And my daughter is just like silent. The conversation stopped, much like I feel in in this room. (laughs) And I looked at her and I says, well, Lauren, like you said, I can't help who I fall in love with. And then I cracked a smile. And she went, Dad. I said, do you expect God to control my emotions just because I'm married and not yours because you're not? I said, it's a choice both of us make. I could easily fall in love with somebody else if I allowed it. But I've got to draw a boundary in what I allow and don't allow. I'm happy to tell you that uh, I wished I could tell you that she went out and broke up with Alex the next day. But I am happy to tell you that over a period of about four to six months later, they drifted apart and they did break up. And as I stated earlier, my daughter began to to date a Christian young man dated him for three years and got married this year. And so we do have a good ending, but I say that knowing that some of you don't have that same positive ending. My daughter and I had a lot of times where those conversations were not so pleasant because I was pushing too hard. But when she looked at me, she says, I don't need to hear one more time where you stand because I know she's heard it all her life. All she needed was for us to have a relationship so that those conversations would continue to the point that when that opportunity came up, I could say the right thing. All you're looking for is the opportunity to say the right thing, to greet that child on the road when they're returning with a problem. That son was coming back because he had no income. The father could meet that need and then speak into that son's life in some way, but the son came back already repentant. All we want to do is open up that door. Thank you, Angie, for playing the role of Lauren. So we want to change the narrative on this. And the way that we do this, literally, is to begin to understand that the church alone, if we deal with it from a church-only situation, the church only gets one hour a week. One hour. And it comes from 30 minutes in a small group, life group, or Sunday school, and 30 minutes from the lead pastor's message and or the student pastor's message or a children's church worship time. That's it. (coughs) One hour out of 168. You see what occupies the rest of it. It's not like the parents have the whole 167 others. You get 49 hours of sleep. That's an average. It's not great. We have electronic use of about 45 hours. That's what the studies show, that we are looking at rectangles 45 hours out of the week, whether it's TV, gaming system, phone, tablets, whatever it is. 
and we're in school 35, do you notice there's an overlap between school and use of electronics? Yeah, there's no accident there. Okay. So we've got to, as a church, engage the parents to say, will you come alongside us? Ephesians says, I want to equip the parents to do ministry. That's how we change the child's heart. And we do it by teaching them how to have different levels of conversations with their child. We're getting into the second chapter of DNA of D6 on this part. This, that title is called Sandcastles, Snorkels, and Scuba, which typify the three different levels of conversations. When my wife and I discuss going on vacation, I argue for the mountains, she argues for the beach. We have a disagreement. Then I grab the bag, I grab the flip-flops, the swimsuits, and we head to the beach, okay? <laughs> and when we get there, we've imagined this beautiful, deserted, sand-white with two chairs and one umbrella, and we're going in there to occupy that and have the peaceful setting. But it's not the way it is. That two seats and one umbrella is absolutely wedged between 100 other two seats and umbrellas and all these kids and all these sandcastles, because that's where the majority of the people are. Going back to our conversations, the majority of the people have what we call shoreline communication. What's the high points of your day? What's the low points? That's sandcastle conversations. Those are conversations we should have every single day. That's the natural conversation starters. Because, tell me your name again. Edward. Come up here, Edward, one more time. It would be a little awkward for me to walk up to my son, my wife, whomever, and go from, instead of, hey, how was the highlight of your day, to, hey, what was your biggest temptation today? I mean, that's going a little deep right off the bat, okay? We don't do that. We use the high-level conversations to get into the next two deeper levels. So as we have that high point, at some point we would have moved from conference to, wow, this one speaker said this. I'm going to have to really ponder that. And all of a sudden, without me even tossing back the tennis ball, Edward would say, well, what about so-and-so? And he would dive a little further into that, and he would begin to, with the precision of that scalpel, kind of do surgery on me the way that I need to on a shallow or maybe even a deeper level. So your child comes home from school, and he says, Dad, I got benched today playing such-and-such. Well, how did that make you feel? We've gone from shoreline to shallow water here. Well, I felt pretty horrible because I don't think I deserved it. I was in practice every single day, but so-and-so, they, they came out, and all of a sudden, I'm looking for where I can go a little bit deeper. Because right now, he hates the coach. And I want to help him understand how to respect authority. So I'm going to look for an authority question there. I'm going to look for the why. But I'm also going to look to reassure him. I want to make sure he feels nurtured in his own way, but not to the point that he has no resiliency because we don't want to become that parent who steps in and does everything for them, okay? That's a topic for our next one, okay? That's where, where we're going to go. But we want to get further and further in there, because here's what happens. At Shoreline, we're just discussing topics. Everybody can do that. On the shallow level, we're discussing feelings, but at this level, we're discussing beliefs, Okay? If we want to have a chance to influence our child, we've got to get to deeper level conversations because that's where beliefs are formed. We can't form beliefs up here with topical communication. So we dive deeper. How did this make you feel? Well, so-and-so broke up with me. How did that make you feel? We're, we're looking in. We use the feelings. We're not using it for psychology. We're using it the way Jesus did with the woman at the well. 
The woman at the well, he was acknowledging. We read those verses like, well, you, sell, you tell me the truth. You're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with is not your husband now. That's how we read that passage. I think it reads a lot more like this. Yeah, you're right. You've had some heartbreak along the way because you've been married five times. And the guy you're living with now is probably not your husband. You're just doing that for security. And we change the narrative a little bit because we're understanding. And then we can go deeper like Christ did and said, but I got something more for you. Would you like that? And he begins to influence the belief system. Thank you, Edward. That's what we want to do with our kids is go deeper. And if we can teach the parents in our church how to go deeper, then they get a chance to influence their kids. Because it's only at that overlap between the parent and the child do we find influence. If there's no overlap, there's no influence. If I can't share a spot with with my daughter in the car, having a conversation, there's zero influence. If she gets in, the earbuds go in, those circles are totally separated. What we want to do is look for places to influence. Now, with the time we have left, which is five minutes, I'm going to give you 30 seconds on any one of these that you want. I'm going to give you some practical ways that you can teach your parents to connect with your child's heart. This is a whole bunch. I actually have one seminar where I put this screen up there and I deal with it for an hour. This one screen. But I'd love to give you just some thoughts here. What one item jumps out at you up there that you want to hear something about real quick? Napkin Napkin notes. Our children were in kindergarten and first grade. Remember I told you we homeschooled from first to to, uh, my, yes, first through eighth. My daughter was in first, my son was in second. So kindergarten and first grade for them, when they went off to school, my wife would pack their lunch. I would take the napkins and draw something on them, or I'd write a verse, and I'd just stick it in their lunch, lunch thing. That was it. Little did I know <clears throat> that my daughter, about a year later, I was putting some clothes away that my wife had done for laundry, and I found in her drawer a whole stack of napkins that I'd drawn before. And she said, oh, yeah, Dad, everybody wanted to see what you had to say or what, what we wanted to say. All we want to do is affirm them, which takes us to this next one called printed notes. When after homeschool, when we entered back into the school system, I knew they were a little bit old for Dad to be drawn with, you know, colored markers on, on the napkin. I printed out a single Bible verse every day. One on the top of the page, one on the bottom. I tore it in half, put it in their backpacks. Sent them to school with a Bible verse every single day. So two, two ways, just they're real simple. I didn't have to be a you know, theologian to do any of that, just kind of connecting with their child's heart. That's what it's about. Give me another one. Adult kids. Adult kids. With our adult kids, we've got to look for ways to connect. They're grown. They're gone. We're in the consultant role. We'll talk about that in another time. But we don't have easy ways to connect. Find a hobby to reconnect. Text. Some of you, if you're sitting there, I suspect that everybody in this room texts. But it took a long time for my parents to text. I said, if you want to connect to your grandkids, you'll learn to text. Well, they can call me. No, they won't call you. If you want to connect to your grandkids, learn to text. Get out of your comfort zone and learn to connect in those ways. So find out a way. Find out the hobbies. Connect. And then you use those, those tennis ball questions when you connect, and you ask those top-of-mind questions. I do this every day. Our kids are grown. They're, they're married. I text with them. Well, how'd the week go? How's this happening? What about this project? We, I know what my son's been working on in engineering in his work. And I say, how's this project going? I talk to my daughter about what she's doing. How does this work? How's the housekeeping going? You know, she loves talking about her house. And, uh, you know, just all you want to do is keep that relationship open in there. One, one, let's do two more real quick. Keeping it real. That kind of goes back to after you read a book, don't pretend to be the expert. Don't pretend to be perfect in front of your kids. Just be real. Don't try to be their friend. 
they need a parent. And, you know, I, I have the, probably the most retweeted item that I get. I, I still see this. And I haven't tweeted it for like two years. Kids cry out for leadership. It's called parenting. <laughs> they want a parent. They don't need a friend. They've got lots of friends. You need to parent them, which is loving them, but it's coaching, guiding, consulting, depending on what age and stage they're at. One more, and we'll close. Service projects. Service projects. <laughs> so many churches send their students off to do service projects, mission trips. And I'm going to tell you, and, and by the way, this church is a great model of, who, of somebody who does it right. I've interviewed Link Taylor. I know Jay Strother. I know Mike. Their heart's in the right place. When they send their teens off, they send their parents with them. Because when they come back from a mission field or a service project, God's been doing a work in their heart, but the parents aren't ready to decompress it or de- you know, to unpack it. But now we've got conversations we can take all the way to that deepest level. Hey, did you see what happened here? So service projects, consider doing them with your family. Even if it's going across town, serving in a soup kitchen, serving in a homeless, painting bathroom stalls in a public school, whatever it is, go do it together. That's the key to that one. Thank you guys. Thank you ladies for listening. Let me pray for you guys, okay? Father, I know there's some hurting hearts in here. I pray, Lord, they draw a line in the sand today and begin praying about how to make that handwritten letter to reconnect and to rebuild conversations. They use photos from a photo album. They use service projects. They do trips together. They text together. Whatever it is, they rekindle that relationship so that there's an open relationship ready for that right conversation when it's to be had. In your name, amen. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. The message you just heard was from D6 Conference's track at the National Disciple Making Forum. Download their free church health assessment PDF at discipleship.org D6. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.